everyone, welcome to the 252nd episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have, I'm going to just call it a depressing show for, for <laughs> y'all this there's, week. There's a theme in this one. Yeah, everything is being bricked. They no longer work. We're going to be talking about asset ownership in a subscription world. We're going to be talking about... Oh, some fun acquisitions, things that aren't going to stop working for a while. We're also going to be talking about both the loss of your privacy and a privacy framework from NIST that could help you possibly keep it, and an open source effort to encrypt the IoT. Plus, we have our usual security challenges to talk about, and Kevin has played with the Samsung SmartThings Wi-Fi hub, and he wants to talk about his take on the latest SmartThings application and user experience. Plus, our guest is Perry Carell from Extreme Networks. You're also going to hear from our sponsor, Machine Q, talking about how customers are using it to make their lives a little bit easier. Before we get into all of that, let's hear from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is IoT World. Y'all are invited to North America's largest IoT event, IoT World. It's the intersection of industries and IoT technologies. Held April 6th through 9th at the San Jose Convention Center in Silicon Valley, celebrating its seventh anniversary, IoT World will welcome over 12,500 IoT professionals, 400 speakers, and 400 exhibitors and startups. You can connect with strategists, technologists, and implementers to put IoT, 5G, and Edge into action across key industry verticals. Conference prices are going up on Friday, but you can save an additional 25% with the code STACY25. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y 25. To learn more and to register, visit IoTWorldEvent.com. Okay, Kevin. Big news so far this week is an email from Sonos. Did you get it? I did not get it. I did. It seems that Sonos has... (laughs) (laughs) My Sonos gear that I purchased respectively in 2009 and in 2012, it has hit the end of its life. Sonos is telling people that if you purchased what it is calling its legacy products, its original zone players, Connect and Connect Amps, plus its first-generation Play 5 speaker that was launched in 2009, and its bridges, you will no longer receive software updates or new features. What that means is those devices will continue to work, but they may, at any point in time after stopping the updates, stop working or certain features will stop working if, like, Spotify changes an API call. You're also not going to get any new features for these devices. Sonos has tried to make this less of a blow by letting people have 30% off new products. So when you bought those products, a couple of things, you you spent a lot of money because they're far more expensive than they are today. Yes, I spent... So basically all of my Sonos gear is now not going to be updated further. It is now a legacy product and it will not get updates. I spent about $2,000 on that. 
And I have a lot of feelings about that. Mm-hmm. But I will say most of that stuff I sold. So when I moved, I sold like $1,200 worth of it. Mm-hmm. And then just last month, like when I got home from when I was at CES, my husband sold the Play 5 speaker. And this was good after, timing. Good timing. Well, I, I feel kind of bad about it. I mean, yeah. I'll be honest. I, I don't relish that. Th- I mean, I did not know this was going to happen at this time. And I think that gets to the big issue here. And that is, well, there's a couple of big issues, but the big issue on the Sonos point of view is when I bought this, it was early on in the IoT. Well, we'll be real. But I expected it to behave like more traditional audio equipment. And Sonos kind of, you know, it talked about the the product getting better over time, which is something we still hear about. But if you're going to market a connected product as getting better over time, I think you need to do it both ways. And you need to say until a certain point in time. And I think you need to do it big. Like Philips, for example, just late last year or middle of last year, they said that they were not going, they were only going to support their connected hubs for a certain set of time. I believe it was three years after purchase. They guaranteed software updates. And that's because they're transitioning away to uh, over to Bluetooth. Well, some of their stuff will still be Zigbee and some of it will be Bluetooth. It's mm-hmm. not like a, a dedicated transition to that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's again, it's it's a functionality of not wanting to support generations of legacy gear. And I get that. But when Philips did it, they did not shout it from the rooftops. They did not put an expiration date on the box. They sent out an email and stuck it in the terms and conditions, which is not like shouting it from the rooftops at all. It is the opposite of that. It is burying it. Right. And that's probably becoming more common, I would say, because as software pervades into these hardware devices and there are services involved and servers and so on, all these tech companies want an out, basically, because technology changes so fast. And I get that. I really do. I'm not somebody who's like irrationally wanting one side, the updatability of a software-based product, right? And not acknowledging that there's a downside to that, which is eventually you're going to run into processing barriers, memory barriers, or just cost barriers associated with having a developer continuously update something that has not been sold for 10 to 15 years. Right. right. It takes resources away from the new products and and the future timeline of of the company. But we know that now, and we (laughs) should be adapting to that. Again, when you market, you have to say, it's going to get better up until this date, and then we're going to stop supporting it. Microsoft does that with Windows. Companies do that with their operating systems, Apple, Android. We have to start doing that with these devices. So that's one. Or or we don't buy them at all. We end up leasing them. Right. Well, that's that's a little weird. And we'll talk about the leasing in a Mm -hmm. second, Mm -hmm. because actually... Sonos is not the only thing that has been bricked. UA, Under Armour. Kevin, you used to have these, the UA Gearbox. Um, yes. I know I had one. You had one. It was shoes, a scale, a yeah. tracker. Yeah, so that's, tracker, all connected products. Yep. Do you still have that? I do not. I bounce around from fitness thing to fitness thing. So, But I, I went to New York City for the launch of that and got review units. And I had the scale and the the insole sneaker with the, the tracking device built in and yeah, it actually worked really well. I liked it a lot, actually. 
So those aren't going to be supported anymore. They, nope. <laughs> Under Armour, pulled the UA Record app from the Google Store, apparently on New Year's Eve. Um, and then they just said that in March, they're just going to stop. None of this is going to work. And in fact, related, but still working, um, a very popular app called MyFitnessPal. I believe UA bought them either just before or just after the yes. UA gear. That's still around. And I use that actually to track calories and, and whatnot. But um, that whole acquisition was to fuel these connected products that will no longer work nor be sold. Right. And frustratingly for lots of people, you can't export your weight data. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at things we need not. to from do. From a scale, from one scale to the next, why would you want to? Really? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, I was like, really, Kevin? I mean, it, it should be it should be a standard. So that's feed. the thing, right? So if you're going to close your stuff down, God, make it easy for people to get it. Like, get their data out, especially for something like that. Sonos, it's a little different. I don't need the data about, but for something like that, that it seems like a no-brainer. The other news is Charter slash Spectrum is killing their security systems. Bricked. Bricked. And this also has people up in arms because they spent sometimes more than $1,000 buying these sensors for motion sensors, door, window, open-close sensors, cameras, doorbells, thermostats, all of that done. Some of that will be recoverable because they use open standards like Zigbee, Z-Wave, etc. And you'll be able to like recover your thermostat. So that will be nice if you have a Zigbee, Z-Wave compatible hub like SmartThings or you're running a Raspberry Pi with a, a dongle on it with something like Home or Assistant. Habitat. Or Habitat Hub. Uh, oh, they have a dongle. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But the sensors themselves are not going to work because when you do a monitored security system, apparently you flash firmware to those sensors that make it not work outside of your system. And I'm sure that is, again, a security thing. Or is it? I'm starting to get very skeptical here. Well, all, all of these radio protocols, uh, like the Bluetooth SIG, for example, you can go look and see a vendor ID that's specifically for a certain company to use Bluetooth radios. It's the same, I believe, with, with the uh, the Zigbee stuff. Yes. And honestly, Kevin... It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And last month we had, oh, ring hacked, blah, blah, blah. So many hacks, all this stuff, never safe, blah, blah, blah. And now we're like, everything's shutting down. And th- we go through this. This happens a lot. Like, I remember the outrage over Revolve. It was smaller mm-hmm. because, you know, Sonos is a pretty mainstream company. But there's been outrage over devices shutting down. We have Anki. And the question really becomes, what do we do with it? I do think the chip standard will help. I'm going to write a lovely article in the newsletter. So if you really want to talk about solutions, you'll see more about that coming out Friday. And chip is not a chip. It's the connected home over IP initiative that we mentioned a couple weeks ago. It's a proposed standard by Apple, Google, and Amazon to have basically the smart home be actually interoperable. In that case, if you have a standard, what happens kind of like with the charter spectrum stuff is you could turn to a different hub or a different orchestration, basically, to operate the things that are now no longer operable. It's not going to work in every situation, but it will help in some situations. Yep. So that is, I guess- That's our brick section. Yeah, that's the section on bricks. Let's go to this idea of asset ownership, just because it's super- Yes, let's, because we have a little bit of different opinion on this. Yes, and this came up because of why. 
Because General Motors uh, has debuted the Cruise Origin, this is a modular, self-driving, call it a people mover, essentially, because it, it's a shareable car or vehicle. It's not even a car. It looks like a small bus. <laughs> but basically, it's self-driving, autonomous. And they debuted this. What I liked about it was the modular part, so they could replace sensors and things or new technologies or older technology with new technologies, etc. But the other interesting aspect, and the one that you were alluding to, Stacey, is that they're not going to sell you this vehicle. It is meant to take the place of you owning a vehicle or supplementing, I suppose. And it's it's basically an autonomous transit device uh, vehicle. So you would share your rides with other people. And GM says that's going to save the average person $5,000 a year and yada, yada, yada. And I like the idea of it. I thought it was very interesting. And it's a massive, massive business strategy change for GM who makes their money selling vehicles. They'll still sell these. But my guess is they will also get a take of the tolls or whatever it is, fees that you pay. So it's essentially uh, person delivery as a service. So no ownership. So what's interesting here is that actually solves one of the problems I have, like reselling my Sonos gear to only find out that it's defunct, right? If the company providing the product as a service controls the physical device, they can pull it as needed, right? So they can handle it like a fleet. So that's in some ways really good for the consumer. My big concern though is how then in a subscription-based world, how do you buy assets that you can learn, that you can monetize? For example, owning a car is sometimes a path to wealth for people, especially in areas where car ownership isn't as high. You can own a car, you can charge people for rides like Uber and Lyft, right? Or you could just do a under the table black market kind of charging people for rides. And that goes away. And so in a car is it's expensive, but it is a relatively cheap asset. That's how people build wealth. It's accessible to people in a way like a home might not be. And it feels like as more of our world goes to these subscription businesses, it's going to become harder and harder for people who don't have wealth to access ownership of things in order to generate wealth. And that scares me. Yeah, and, and those are all good points. My thought was, well, then you have freed up the, the money for the car payment, the insurance, the gas, the maintenance to invest in other assets. Maybe they're not physical assets. Maybe they are, you know, you know, stocks, Bitcoin, whatever it is you want to invest in, you know, invest in some Bitcoin miners and mine your own Bitcoin. But you raise a good point in terms of what will we actually own in the future? And it's becoming to look like less and less. Right. And if ownership is the current path to wealth, what path to wealth can we open up for a future when everything is a service? Work for a tech company who is making money on the service. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, All right. I, I don't have a better answer than that. No, no, it's it's true. So there's your deep thoughts for the podcast. And maybe I've just been reading too much dystopian fiction. Here's, I don't know if this is positive, but this is a try. This is an effort. There is an open source effort to encrypt the Internet of Things by a company called Tesseract. Kevin, you want to talk to us about this? Yeah. Um, Wired did a nice profile uh, on this effort. Uh, maybe we can link to it in the show notes. And then I took a look a little bit deeper into the company's website and the product offerings. And 
essentially they're saying, hey, with a very low-powered chip, we can do it with a Cortex-M0, we can do it with an Arduino, basically. We can use cryptography to make sure that all of your IoT device traffic is encrypted everywhere it is. Therefore, less hacking, um, firmware deployments will be trusted, and so on. I mean, it addresses a couple of the key security issues in the IoT. I mean, they say it can be done for as little as you know, 10 cents per machine and so on. These things have existed in the past. There are companies yes. that do encryption and security on constrained devices, which means like microprocessors as opposed to like big fat processors. But the key here is that this is open source. Yes. And that's important because instead of some closed source or I'll call it a proprietary method that you can't see, this is open for everybody to review. You can go on GitHub and view all the source code. And while you and I might not find issues, you know, uh, security experts could, and that makes the platform better for everybody. Yes, I will never find an issue <laughs> looking at like cryptography. Never. That's just too much math. Okay. And then also in somewhat positive news, NIST has a new privacy standard. I put it in last week's newsletter, just the link to the base privacy standard because it had come out on Thursday. But having read through most of it, I'm going to be honest, most of it, it looks good. Basically, NIST's idea, this ties and is following the same sort of framework that their cybersecurity framework does. And that was, I think that came out in 2018. And it was pretty good. The idea is that it is going to force you when you're developing your product to ask questions about how you're building your product and how those decisions will affect the users of your product's privacy. It's not just saying, hey, secure your stuff. It's also saying things like, hey, do you need to collect this particular data? What function does it have? So maybe you don't need everybody's Wi-Fi network and password that you'll later have some developer stick on an open you know, S3 bucket somewhere, right? <laughs> maybe you don't need that at all. There's questions like that. It's a, a framework. It's not like a prescriptive thing. It's asking you, what do you need to do? Other things like, hey, how long do you really need this data? Do you need it to be stored in a public mm -hmm. cloud or maybe it just stays local? It's kind of funny because it's, it's a five-tiered type of a framework or a, a toolkit that's voluntary. As you said, you can use it. And it just reminds me of so many of the prescriptive things that we've been saying for at least a half a dozen years. And the folks at NIST do listen to the show. So, oh, okay. Big well, thank shout you. Out Thanks, to NIST. NIST. Also, Thanks. they're talking to the same people we talk to to come up with some of these. I mean, like, that's true. Yeah. Kevin and I do actually re reach out to experts to figure some of this stuff out because, you know, security is not, it's not our expertise at all. But some of this feels very commonsensical. And mm -hmm. for people who are interested, we're going to link to this in the show notes. And actually, I'm hoping to get someone from NIST on the podcast next week or the week after to talk to us. The person who created this is currently in Europe right now. So we're getting this set up. That so send in awesome. your questions. Actually, if you have questions about this or things you want to know more about, tell me and maybe we can ask. Okay. Speaking of privacy, <laughs> the New York Times this weekend declared that we have none. And basically this story by the excellent, always excellent Kashmir Hill about a company called Clearview AI that basically scraped all of <laughs> photo, all of the photos of you from Facebook, Twitter, other places, plus accessing other databases of faces and images. Yeah, just um, three billion photos. Yeah, just three billion. There's that's 
that's not how many people there are in the world. Come on, you're fine. The odds are you're in there, actually, if you're in a first world country. But all of this data is now made available through a product called Clearview AI, where law enforcement can upload a picture of your face from like a, a ring camera or surveillance video. And it'll come up with, hey, this matches this person who's posted on Facebook at this location. It will tell you maybe, hey, this person seems to go to school in this place. This is literally what I have been afraid of for, I'm going to go with six or seven years. And look, it exists, it's real, and police officers are using it. And using it to solve crimes is not exactly what I'm afraid of, although there is a point to be made about which crimes get solved. Are you going after brown suspects more than white suspects? Are you Pre-crime, pre-crime, minority report. But yes, I'm very worried, like one of the suggestions in the article was to use it for opposition research for politicians, Mm -hmm. which terrifying. If you stick my face up there and, you know, you see that, oh, I have posted from this bar 10 years ago with my friends. Is that, I don't know, you know, maybe those friends saw the worst side of me. Again, lots of things here that I don't like. And and I I would agree. Unfortunately, we've, we've already seen this in China. My take is that this really is where we are heading in the US and scares the bejesus out of me at this point. We could regulate this. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I hear you. That is the only way, by the way, that is the only way this is going to happen. I would also say even my idea about putting expiration dates on things, the only way that will happen is through regulation because you're right. not going to want to put a you're not going to want to put an expiration date on something if your competitor doesn't have it. Right. Because people are going to be like, oh, this expires. Suck. All right. That's it. Regulation. (laughs) I wish our government was working right now. Let's go to news. (laughs) 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 Good news in the smart home world. Noon Home, which made these really cool and expensive lighting controls. You basically installed these. They sensed the lights and they would come up with prescribed scenes for you. So you didn't have to do all that work. It would just be like, hey, do you like this? We call this dinner party. And you're like, yes, this is amazing. They had not been doing as well as we had hoped. And there was a little bit of doubt about what happens to them. But RacePoint Energy, which owns the Savant smart home brand, they acquired them. So I'm excited. Savant has always been to me the apple of the smart home. It has been... Mm -hmm. Even back in 2011, 2012, when I started on this, I was just like, this is gorgeous. This is why rich people pay a lot of money for home automation, because this is amazing. Savant is also now the exclusive partner for Yale and August Smartlocks. So, hmm. yeah. Does that mean I won't be able to get it at a Lowe's or Home Depot? Or No, it does not mean you won't be able to go to your hardware store. You will still be able to do that. But- If you are looking at Savant, the only lock that Savant is going to provide will be Yale August locks. Gotcha. Okay. I'm not a high-end smart home buyer or anything, so. But don't don't you wish you could be? And if you are, (laughs) I gotta say that stuff is pretty. I don't know. Everything keeps getting bricked. I'm not sure. (laughs) Oh, they've they've been in business a while. You're fine. I know. I know. All right. Yes. Other little bits of news. ST Micro, the chip company, has joined the Zigbee Alliance. This is not surprising. They've made Zigbee chips for a while. My hunch is this is about getting in touch with the chip people. Chip. Connected yeah, they're on the board of directors now. So, yay. Mm-hmm. Also, is this surprising? I don't know. People, despite the hacks, keep buying Ring gear. <laughs> Ring's online sale of screw. 
in the U.S., they grew 180% in December as everyone bought Christmas presents. And I'm just going to tell you, because my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law, and my brother and sister-in-law also always are all in on Madam A devices, and they wanted some smart home cameras and a doorbell camera, I was like, just get ring. They're, you're already working with them. And they're normal. They don't care about the hacks. I did set my sister-in-law up with two-factor. I tried to talk to my in-laws about that. I don't know if that's going to happen. But I just couldn't. It's a viable option. And I just over between our last show and now, I installed a ring doorbell for one of my neighbors who's not very tech savvy, but they wanted to buy a video doorbell and they, they bought a ring. They knew about the hacks and they're like, eh, whatever. Yeah, people don't care. Now, did you make them do two-factor? I forced it on them. Yes, I did. Okay, see, so that's... I explained why as well. And yes. I didn't just say, you need to do this. How did they feel about that? Oh, they do whatever I say. Okay. <laughs> I could have said I could have said spin around your chair three times before the ring doorbell works, and they would have done it. So, thank you for not abusing your power. No, um, I would never do that. Also, in the uh, insecure IoT, hey, uh, this hacker <laughs> not, not Telnet again. <laughs> it's Telnet. My our, our show notes just like quit using Telnet. And I did actually. Okay, so here's here's the deal. ZDNet is reporting that a hacker has listed credentials for more than 500,000. So that's a half a million servers, home routers, and IoT devices. Yeah. It's, uh, you know what? Just stop using Telnet. Stop I, using Telnet. Right. I asked somebody, I was like, hey, is there like an alternative? that They're like, yeah, it's SSL. Just, just don't <laughs> use Telnet, period. So if you're a manufacturer, don't use Telnet. I don't care. It's 2020. Just quit it. There's no excuse. And I and I talked to security people just to confirm that there is no excuse. There is no excuse. Okay. Let's talk about smart things, Kevin. Yeah, good news. Some, some happy news, actually. Yes. I believe it was mid-December on the podcast. I said that I had the Samsung Smart Things Wi-Fi mesh gear, and I gave that a review and have been very happy with that. But at the time, because we're get, getting ready for CES, I didn't have time to use the actual integrated Smart Things hub. And I said I was kind of pulling the plug on Wink, so the timing was good. I finally got around to setting up the hub and using the Smart Things. I'll call it modern app, the new app instead of the classic app, which is the one I had used two years ago last time I used SmartThings. And I am very impressed. I am glad I took a second look at Samsung SmartThings. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything from switching from Wink to SmartThings. In fact, I feel like I'm gaining an awful lot because the brands and devices that are supported have just exploded, in my opinion. And Winx really hasn't. And that's one of the reasons that I said I'm thinking about switching over. I want to be not future-proof, but I want to think forward, I guess is the best way to say it. There were a few setup glitches. Like one time I was trying to discover one of my Cree connected bulbs and smart things found it and said, Hey, I found your Wiimote plug. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> because uh, it? yeah, cause a one's a bulb and one's a switch or an outlet rather and B. One uses Zigbee and one uses Wi-Fi. So I don't know how that happened, but I just removed the Wiimote device discovery or device and uh, reset the Cree connected bulb and it was fine. And, and I have a multitude of different bulbs in the house. I use Cree, I use Osram, I use uh, Wise, mm, I think I'm forgetting, LifeX and no problem. Everything works. It's great. Also noticed that and, and Stacy, you had had a wing cub. I don't think I don't know if you still do, but when setting up Z-Wave devices, 
I always had to like bring them like practically within an inch of the hub for discovery. Yes, I did. And it was great that the wink was on Wi-Fi for that purpose. Yeah. Well, turns out that I didn't have to remove any of my door window sensors, which are Z-Wave. I left them in place. And because the access points there, I have two of them set up, you know, they're distributed around the house, one on one floor, one on the other. For some reason, I didn't have to do that with SmartThings. It found the Z-Wave devices without having to like bring them close to the hub. And what's interesting also, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, every one of the access points, and you can get a three pack for like $280 if you want, if you need that much mesh Wi-Fi, but every access point is hardware identical. So they all have Zigbee, they all have Z-Wave, they all have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in them. And I wonder if that's part of the reason that- full of repeaters. Yes, basically, basically. So um, I had to learn a few things about the new app. Like I was setting up some timers and I didn't like the fact that I couldn't set a light to go on 15 minutes before dusk or sunset. Turns out that in the device, you can't do it, the device settings. But if you go into the automations, it's doable. So I had to find my way through. But honestly, it's been excellent. It's really, really good. And I want to just clarify, I'm not against Wink. I've been a loyal and happy Wink customer for, I don't know, what, three, four years? And it's just a personal choice that I'm making because I don't see a lot of innovation there. I don't see a lot of new devices being added there with the integrations. And we've heard some sketchy things about uh, the financials of the company, people not getting paid. And I wonder about its viability. So having said all that, if Wink works for you, keep using Wink. I'm not saying jump over like I did, but if you want to, I think you'll be happy. Okay. And so are we going to see you as a SmartThings, regular SmartThings user for Control now? I believe so. Although this also illuminated something very interesting. Most of my devices now really are Wi-Fi or Bluetooth based, and I don't need a hub because the industry has changed a bit. So if you don't need Z-Wave or Zigbee, you could really just get away by using Google Home or Amazon Echoes, to be honest. Oh, yeah. That was a common thread at CES, all the Wi-Fi. Yes. Okay. Well, now it is that time again. It is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline. And we are doing a giveaway this month, which is, holy cow, a smart dry sensor. You pop this thing into your dryer and it will tell you when your clothes are dry. This is a common thing that people want. So if you would like to be entered to win that device, give us a call at 512-623-7424. And you'll be entered to win. You have to enter before the end of the month on January. So we we follow Eastern time on that, midnight Eastern time. And you have to be in the US or Canada to win. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, rest of world. We still love you. We can still try to answer your questions too. That's Absolutely. Absolutely. We're not against you that way. Okay. So this week's question comes from, (laughs) I'm not going to say it, Dan the Fan Man. I said it. Let's hear it. Hello, Kevin and Stacey. This is Dan from Indianapolis. I have a question about smart fans. I know they make smart fans for your ceiling out there, but I have a small, like, personal fan that I would like to connect up to Alexa or um, Madame A or Google Home. But I've had problems finding um, outlets, smart outlets that are Wi-Fi connected because I've tried to get away from the smart things ecosphere and I'm looking for something that I can dim. So like I can say Alexa, dim the fan to 50% rather than 
thirty percent or or a hundred percent or whatever, so it doesn't come it doesn't have so much airflow. And I'm having a really hard time finding I can find lots of Wi Fi connected outlets, but I just can't find any that allow me to do the control the amount of power that goes to the fan. Uh really love this show and thanks again. Bye. Oh Dan, okay. We have found some options, but what you're trying to do is a very bad no good thing. I just have yeah. to tell you. Logically, what he's trying to do makes sense, but fans are not the same as dimming lights. Yes. So that's the first thing you need to know. And we had to go learn a little bit about how motors work, how electricity works to to be able to figure out why this doesn't happen. But basically, the essential is when you're powering a motor on, it takes a lot of electricity and it doesn't dim like a light can dim. A motor, you have to control the amount of power going to it in stages. And that is why fans don't dim on and off, really. It takes a lot of juice up front to get the fan started, for example. And so you can't actually do what you want to do unless you want to just turn your fan on and off using an outlet. So don't hook up. There are outlets that have dimmer capability. Don't do that. It's a fire risk. Worst case, it's a fire risk. Best case, what you'll have is a really loud hum as the dimmer tries to to handle that, and you'll likely end up burning out your motor. So that is why you should not put a lighting dimmer on a motor. They do make controls for that. Those controls are not Wi-Fi based that we can find. Those things are called variable frequency drives, VFDs. So you can look for that, but we didn't find any that were really Wi-Fi enabled. But Kevin did look and found something that might help you out. Right. And we don't know the size of the fan that you're talking about. You said personal fan, so we're assuming it's not a ceiling fan. If you want to replace the fan, and I know it's not a great option, you can do what you want to do because we found two different oscillating fans, like 16-inch fans that can be extended up to four and a half feet or so on a stand with Wi-Fi built in. So, um, one was the fan from Nash, and we found this on Amazon, the Nash Smart Wi-Fi Oscillating Pedestal Stand Fan. Works with Madam A, works with Google, has an app. You can control it through the app or by voice then. That's $99.95. We also found a similar product from Wasserstein. It's a 16-inch, also 16-inch Smart Oscillating Pedestal Fan. Works with Madam A, works with Google. It's only $59.99. Apparently, that is Wi-Fi as well. So there's a couple choices out there if you want to replace your fan. And I know that's not necessarily what you want to do, but that's the best we could find for for safety reasons. We don't want you, you know, blowing up your house with a dimmer switch. Yeah, don't burn down your house. We advocate against that. That's worse than bricked. Yes. All right. Well, that concludes this portion of the Internet of Things podcast. Please stay tuned for our guest, Perry Carell, who is going to talk to us about Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E. All right. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Machine Q, a Comcast service. And I have Hannah Schneider here with us from Machine Q. So Hannah, remind us, what is Machine Q? Machine Q is a Comcast service that helps enterprises connect their operations through our integrated suite of low-power IoT devices, gateways, and management software. There are two primary products we offer today, infrastructure, which includes our IoT gateways, 
APIs, and our flagship device and gateway management experience, MQ Central, and then our platform product, which includes a portfolio of low-power sensing devices. We offer temperature, leak detection, vibration, and energy monitoring devices, many other use cases, all of which can be layered on top of our infrastructure product. Excellent. So we previously learned how customers are using MachineQ's infrastructure product. This week, I'd really like for you to talk about your platform product. Can you tell us how enterprises are using that today? Absolutely. We're currently working with a Fortune 500 food retailer to solve their needs for our MachineQ platform product. This customer came to MachineQ to prevent costly inventory write-offs for their refrigerated food items. They were looking for a temperature-sensing device whose transmissions could penetrate through refrigerators, a dedicated low-power IoT network through which these battery-powered devices could communicate, as well as software to manage their deployment. MachineQ was able to provide a solution for this customer through our platform product, and that included our MQ Flex device, which is a multi-sensing device that includes sensing capabilities for temperature, humidity, and more, our Area 8C, which is our indoor low-power IoT gateway, and then our suite of APIs and MQ Central software, all of which they can use to manage their network. And what was the result of all of this? This customer was able to take advantage of the MachineQ integrated product experience to drive cost savings by repurposing their valuable labor resources to focus on revenue-driving initiatives in their stores rather than on manual food temperature monitoring. In addition, MQ Central also offers notifications. So with this, their employees can be alerted whenever a refrigerator or freezer temperature falls outside of those customer set thresholds, which allows them to take action to avoid any food spoilage. That is important. So why has this customer found the MachineQ platform valuable for their business? Yes, historically, we've seen that companies take a more siloed approach to IoT, where they focus on deploying a point solution. And while that solves an immediate need, it really limits their ability to scale those additional use cases without excessive complexity and cost. They found that MachineQ is especially valuable because they realize that they can layer on those additional use cases in their retail stores, in most cases without requiring any additional infrastructure. This customer has since expanded their deployments to include leak detection and are now even considering other use cases. Awesome. All right. Thank you. That really brings the MachineQ platform product to life. So where can our listeners go to find out more about MachineQ? Listeners can learn more at MachineQ.com slash Stacey. That's MachineQ.com slash S-T-A-C-E-Y. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Perry Carell the Director of Product Marketing at Extreme Networks. Hi, Perry. How are you today? Hi, Stacey. I'm thrilled to be here, and hopefully I can can answer any questions you might have. for. uh... Awesome. So we, as I mentioned before, are talking about Wi-Fi 6. We're possibly going to get into Wi-Fi 6E, and who knows, if we're feeling crazy, we might even talk about Wi-Fi 7. Let's get ready (laughs) to talk about networking. Perry, let us talk about our favorite topic, Wi-Fi 6. This is traditionally known as 802.11ax, and we're all abuzz over it in the tech press because we're like, hey, it's going to be super fast. It's going to have this amazing ability to handle lots and lots and lots and lots of devices. But for the most part, Kevin and I, after looking into it, have been telling people that they don't actually need to rush out and replace their routers for a Wi-Fi 6 router because... In the home, you're not going to be dealing with quite that level of density. And then the other devices you're connecting to need to also have Wi-Fi 6 for it all to work. So talk to me about what you're advising consumers in the home around Wi-Fi 6. And I know that's not your day-to-day business, but I'm sure you have thoughts. 
No, no, absolutely. And just to, just to kind of let you know, one of my other hats that I wear at, at Extreme Networks is I'm actually the interface to both the IEEE and the Wi-Fi Alliance. So I'm actually involved with some of that stuff at, at the get-go and, and do that. But the biggest thing to understand about Wi-Fi 6 is that we, and by we, I mean the networking vendors, the Wi-Fi vendors, over the last 20 years, we've created a problem for ourselves. Because every three or four years, we would come out and say, hey, we got this brand new technology. It went from a 802.11a to B, to G, to N, to AC wave one, to AC wave two, and finally AX rather. And you know, every three years we'd come up to the customer and we'd say, hey, you need to buy this new stuff. It's great. It's going to change your life. It's going to make everything easy. And at some point they got, the, the end users got to the point that this doesn't make any difference anymore. Why should I jump to Wi-Fi 6? You, know, you, you promised me that the last four technologies were going to solve all my problems. What's important to understand and appreciate about Wi-Fi 6 is it totally changes the way Wi-Fi works. And it's, it's actually as big a change. You know, my, my networking experience goes back to the, the early Ethernet, ThickNet, Cabletron days and all that stuff. So that's kind of where I've evolved from. But up until this point, the way Wi-Fi has always worked is on an access point. Even though I could have 10, 20, 30, 100 devices connected at one time, only one device can talk at a time on a radio. So everybody else has to wait. And that device talks and then somebody else talks and then somebody else talks. Now, over the last 20 years or so with the different technologies, we'd allow these devices to talk faster and faster and faster, but they still only talk one at a time. What happened with Wi-Fi 6 and why it is a huge change, it allows actually multiple devices to talk at one time. So now instead of one client, one phone, one nurse call system, one device having access to the air, I can actually support dozens of devices talking simultaneously and give them different priorities. And this is upstream and downstream. So that gives me a huge advantage, or that gives Wi-Fi 6 a huge advantage over the other technologies. And, and part of that was that even though Wi-Fi technology got faster and faster, existing technology, I could still have an older device on the network, like a G device or even an early N device. And when that device is talking, it talks really, really slow, and everybody else has to wait. Once all the other client gets their chance, they can talk at whatever speed they can support. But with the mix of high-speed and low-speed devices on one network, that slows the aggregate performance way down. The best way, the best analogy I use for this is anybody who lives near a big city, you know that whether it's the 405 in California or the 475 going around Atlanta, seven o'clock in the morning, you're on that highway and the highway might say 60 miles an hour and we're all doing 12 just because of contention and density and slower devices. And Wi-Fi worked the same way. Now with Wi-Fi 6, it is a little bit faster. It does some offer them capabilities there and it does some other stuff as far as power saving. But the biggest thing is something called OFDMA, Orthogonal Frequency Division Multiple Access. Big word, sounds like you know what you're talking about. But what it does is it allows me, I don't want to call it actually like switching, even though it does that in a way that I can actually talk upstream and downstream to multiple clients at one time. In theory, we could talk to up to 70 plus clients at one time. In reality, you're never going to see numbers like that. You're going to see a dozen or two dozen be able to talk at one time. But to your point, which is very, very important, that in order to get to realize the, the true advantages or the true value of uh, Wi-Fi 6, you really have to have a majority of Wi-Fi 6 clients connected to that radio. Because if you've got 10% Wi-Fi 6 clients and 90% non-Wi-Fi 6 which is probably close to what we have today, you're really not going to see that. I mean, you could put a test bed on it and maybe see some improvement, but the actual user experience isn't going to change until we start getting a lot more Wi-Fi 6 on that radio. That was a lot of knowledge packed in a pretty dense package. <laughs> uh, then it sounds like you agree that no consumer needs to rush out and do this yet. And, and I'm like, if you're going to buy a router, sure. 
pick a Wi-Fi 6 capable one if this is like if it's your time to do this. But otherwise, you can pause. So far at CES, we saw a bunch of new Wi-Fi 6 capable routers. What are the end devices that we're going to see first? Okay, the first thing is obviously the uh, the iPhone 11 came out, and, well, actually before that, Samsung came out and announced that their uh, new phones will support Wi-Fi 6, 11AX type technology, and, and the the iPhone 11 came out and said the same thing. And also on the uh, on the laptop side, they, there actually are some out there, but most of the laptops right now are really gaming laptops, not your traditional ones that you know businesses buy. It's the ones with very very high performance, and obviously if you're gaming, you really need whatever extra benefit you can get. Micro- Microseconds will give you an advantage. So obviously they're very, very interested in, in the 11AX technology. So that that's what we're seeing first. You know, when it's a router or when it's an access point, we're just waiting for that latest technology. We're waiting for the IEEE. We're waiting for the Wi-Fi lines to get further enough along that we can get that out and start selling it because that's the impetus to sell a new generation of product. And what a lot of times people don't realize, and they say, well, where are the clients? Wi-Fi 6, 11AX, I don't want to say it's not important to the phones, but it just kind of what's more important when when the iPhone came out, the Samsung came out, they weren't front page news saying Wi-Fi six. That was buried down in the numbers. They're talking about foldable screens and pixels and all this other stuff. So on the client side, the Wi-Fi six technology isn't really a pusher, isn't a main impetus to actually launch that next generation of product. It's really you know, how good's the camera, how good's the screen and all that. So you will always see a lag in that type of environment. Once again, the reason you saw laptops early on is because they were trying to get into the gaming market where obviously speed was a major driver there. And I also agree with you very, very much so, and not just on the consumer side, but on the enterprise side, you don't go out and rip out a working infrastructure just to go to Wi-Fi 6. And as you said, if my network's slow, if it's time to fix it and I'm going to upgrade, you have to go to Wi-Fi 6 because that's going to give you five, six, seven years of future-proof technology. You don't want to go back and buy 11AC1 or 2. Okay, well, then that gets into the idea of corporate networks. Those networks, I feel like hmm, they could take advantage a little bit earlier. And then we also talked about things like stadiums or shopping malls. So what about those folks? Should they rip and replace? Once again, not unless it's ready to make a change. Once again, my sales guys will hate me for saying that, but it is what it is. Actually, where you're going to see probably the biggest growth or the biggest need for Wi-Fi 6 is actually going to be in what we refer to as the large public venues, whether it's a stadium, whether it's a shopping mall, whether it's a place like that, because what you're going to see, and it's based on turnover, you're going to see people turn over their phones much more often than you see tablets or laptops being turned over. So once again, let's give credit to the younger generation. They want a brand new phone every 12 months. So when that brand new phone time comes along, that's going to be 11AX, a Wi-Fi 6 type device. And so you're going to see in the shopping malls, you're going to see in the public spaces, a bigger demand to take advantage of the Wi-Fi 6 capabilities versus in the enterprise. I mean, if you're in an enterprise and you provide the laptop for your employees, then obviously you probably want to give everybody a, you know Wi-Fi 6 as they turn over their laptops. But that's probably going to be a two or three or even four year process, depending on your corporate direction. And until you have There's no real hard, fast numbers, but let's just say a ballpark. Until you have about 50% worth of your clients as Wi-Fi 6 capable, you're probably not going to see a big difference. And then once you actually get to that point in the enterprise, what's a big deal now is on access points that have dual 5 gigahertz capability. So instead of an access point with a a fixed 2.4 radio and a fixed 5 gigahertz radio, you're going to have a 5 gigahertz that you can set up that this is only going to support 
the Wi-Fi 6 client. So I get all my fast people together and then take the other five gigahertz radio and say, this is only going to support the non-Wi-Fi 6 client. So actually, it's a win-win for both. That oh way my I goodness. can separate them out. And get- You're creating a slow lane. Ah, I love it. Okay. Well, not a slow lane. Let's just say an average lane. <laughs> No, this this would make sense. I'm I'm thinking about like on my consumer side, I'm going back there because a lot of the IoT devices, for example, in my home, they're not going to have Wi-Fi 6 capable chips possibly forever. It's not not in my lifetime. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, those guys are just going to be sitting there, you know, and that's the majority of things on my network. It's not the majority of traffic, but it is definitely a lot of the signaling and pings. Right. So this is interesting. Exactly. And there's a huge value. I understand that if I'm a manufacturer making an IoT device, a widget, what do I want? I want that thing to signal to propagate as far as possible. And I want to get a product that's cheap as possible. And I want a product that's going to work pretty much anywhere in the world. And I hate to say this, but 2.4 gigahertz is the perfect solution for that. And even though 2.4 actually will work in the, in the Wi-Fi 6, they're not going to spend the money right now to do that. Once everything becomes on par on price, then you might actually see you know, I want to sell this widget for 30 bucks, so I want to pay five bucks for the chipset. So I'm not going to spend any money. But you're right. I need to segment these devices out as much as possible. Got it. All right. Now, for fun, let's talk about, oh my gosh, Wi-Fi 6E, which I get what's happening here because I followed networking forever. But as a consumer, I think at this point is when I would want to like rip my hat off my head and just throw it on the ground and disgust. Just be like, oh, what is happening? So let's explain to people what Wi-Fi 6E is and why it matters. It's a good thing. It absolutely is. Because you know, over this last year, there's so many different wireless technologies coming out there, and people are looking at this and go, "This is not. It's not helping me. It's confusing me." And more. But the way to look at Wi-Fi 6E, the six gigahertz space, is once again, let's go back to that high-speed, low-speed lanes. Let's say, say you're you're sitting on that freeway in the morning, and you got four lanes of traffic, and we're all going 12 miles an hour, and you're in the left lane, and you're still going 12 miles an hour, and it's driving you nuts. And you look over to your left, and you see there building this brand new highway and it's eight lanes wide. And right now there's nobody on it. And you're thinking, when am I going to be able to get on that? And then you find out that sometime later in this year, once the FCC approves all this stuff, they're going to open the on-ramp that lane. And it's going to give you more than double the amount of lanes you had before. And also slow cars can't get on it. No combine tractors, no slow. It's going to be Wi-Fi six devices and above are the only people that are going to be allowed on this new superhighway that's going to be twice as wide as what you have right now. That's the way to look at it. You know, I'm, I'm doubling the amount of bandwidth. I'm giving a lot more channels. It's going to be a lot less interference associated with that. No legacy clients. It's Wi-Fi 6 and higher speed. And the key point here is it's still Wi-Fi. It's going to be invisible. When you're using your phone or your tablet and you're on a thing, it's like, okay, do I want to get on the cellular network or do I want to get on the Wi-Fi network? When you get on the Wi-Fi network, you're system will automatically jump between 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. You don't even have to do that. You don't have to worry about it. Well, that's going to be 2.4, 5 gig or 6 gig. It's still Wi-Fi. You don't have to learn anything new. So whether you're a consumer or an IT administrator in the enterprise, it's not like I have to learn a brand new technology. It's just Wi-Fi operating at a different frequency. And it's going to be huge because it's just a lot more bandwidth, a lot more performance, a lot more capability, and it will give a better user experience. Got it. But this is all reliant on the FCC, which every now and then that makes me a little nervous. So how close to a done deal is this that we're going to have this? Because this is going to be shared spectrum and it's not auctioned off. It's unlicensed. So that's great. 
but what needs to happen at the FCC to make this real and how likely is it? The good thing about that is that we expect the FCC to sign off on this before the end of the year. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the last time they had a vote, it was unanimous. Everybody said, hey, we need to we need to open this space up for unlicensed Wi-Fi use and, and whatever. The second part, and let's just be honest, is that the members, uh, the board on the FCC, those are political appointees. We've got an election in the United States at the end of the year. So obviously the people that are on the board right now, whether they stay or whether they go, they want to get this out the door before that happens. So we're pretty confident uh, in the people I've talked to and what I've been involved in at different organization groups that the FCC will bless that. There's some limitations as far as power. There's a couple of incumbents on there, microwave type stuff that we have to make sure we don't interfere with them. Same thing we did with Doppler radar and the five gigahertz band, but it is going to happen. Broadcom came out at CES and they announced eight new chips. So obviously they're throwing their money in their beliefs. So they, and also I think Intel came out and announced some stuff. So I'm thinking before the, uh, the end of this year, the FCC is kind of open up that spectrum. Okay. Let me throw something controversial to end on. A couple months ago, I had a person who was building a connected postal tracking service, and they use cellular for it because it goes all around the world on ships, all kinds of crazy places. And Wi-Fi just isn't isn't ready for that. It's not it's not mobile that way. So this person explained to me in great detail how they felt that Wi-Fi in the next decade would be kind of a technology of the past, where Cellular with MBIOT, with the emergence of using things like CBRS band and virtual SIMs would suddenly become much more compelling because the costs would go down. You would be able to, you know, authenticate on networks automatically, all, all kinds of interesting things. And there was a security and QoS level that isn't available in Wi-Fi. I just want to throw that out there at you and ask you, where do you see Wi-Fi going, especially with these high-value, highly mobile connected devices? Wi-Fi is going to continue to be the primary technology for the rest of my life. It's not going to be the only technology. It's kind of like, they, they, you know, is 5G going to replace Wi-Fi? Is 5, Wi-Fi going to replace? No, it's never going to happen because, you know, one of the things to understand and appreciate all this is that this kind of all wraps around 5G. 5G really has two parts to it. It's called new radio and it's called network slicing. I'm not going to get into network slicing, but the new radio component includes Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is one of the on-ramps into 5G with private LTE, WiMAX, and whatever else. So Wi-Fi is never going to go. It's always going to be a primary component with the OSDMA type technology, with the resource units, with the segmentation that Wi-Fi 6 offers. You're going to get a lot more security associated that. You're going to get a lot more QoS because I can dedicate amount of bandwidth. Prior to Wi-Fi 6, it was all shared and I can have different priority schemes. But with OSDMA and the ability to dedicate a certain amount of bandwidth to certain clients, like voice clients, I get that QoS automatically. The greatest technology has never won. You know, as I said, I'm, I'm an old guy. I remember, um, you know, Ethernet, token ring, FDDI, ATM. Token ring was better than Ethernet. Everybody can argue that point. Ethernet won because it was stable. It was easy. It was, and the same thing with FDDI, the same thing with ATM, that Wi-Fi is here. It's reliable. It's understood. And one of the best examples I saw that why Wi-Fi is going to stay where it is, is that second half of last year, there were a couple of reports that came out from IDC. And right now, there are about 13 billion Wi-Fi devices operating in the world. And we're adding 4 billion more each year. And what they were saying is their expectations, and it's pretty conservative, actually, is that by the end of this year, we're going to add about 1.6 billion Wi-Fi 6 devices. 1.6 billion Wi-Fi 6 devices. At the same time, they're saying by the end of 2025, we'll have 1.5 billion 5G devices. 
So you're never going to replace these devices, the phones, the tablets, the laptops. Yeah, your phones are going to have a multi-SIM. That's a great idea. It's going to give you some different capabilities. But how many tablets have a cellular enable right now? How many laptops have? How many of those IoT devices we were just talking about, they don't want to spend the money on you know, Wi-Fi 6. They're not going to add. You know, If I have a choice, do I go 5G? Do I go cellular or do I go Wi-Fi? It's going to be a Wi-Fi interface. So it's, it, forget the technology discussion. You almost need to take it down to a common sense type stuff that it's not a competition. Wi-Fi, private health, CBRS, 5G, all these technologies are going to coexist and actually collaborate to assist each other depending on your use cases because there's definitely advantages one has over the other but those are going to be you know wi-fi is not going anywhere anytime soon it's kind of like you know for 10 years they're saying wireless is going to replace you know wired the data center is going to be wired for a long long time you know wireless doesn't work in that space so once again that's that's the world according to perry all right perry thank you so much for coming on the show this week i really appreciate it oh it was my pleasure i enjoyed talking about this stuff That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 